Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. A very fearful and tenuous hello. This is Once for All Delivered. I am Andrew Smith. And I am Caleb Castro. And why are we tenuous and fearful? Yeah, so we're back. You might have noticed if you actually listen and care about our show that we've been off the last few weeks. And uh, it has not been because we have been unavailable to do shows. Well, it has been a little bit of that. But um, what happened is I think I mentioned on the last show we actually did air that I would be getting a new computer and it was going to make everything better. And instead, I got a new computer, and it just absolutely destroyed everything. Um, so basically, um, and we learned this the really hard way. We actually, a couple weeks ago, we recorded a two-hour episode with our friends from the Restless Podcast, Pastors Michael and Matt, only to have the computer completely eat and scramble and destroy our audio beyond use. And so I've spent the last couple of weeks trying to fix it and i hope it's fixed if you're listening and if you're watching i guess let us know if it's uh actually working right or if it's garbled nonsense because otherwise we may not know until it's too late so be it um but we thank you for your continued support and patience as we're still trying uh, you know three years in to try to figure out how to do a show um, you'd think we'd pick it up somewhere along the way, but, uh, my big sobs, yeah, my big sob story about tech aside, uh, Caleb, what are we doing tonight? We are continuing with the catechisms that, which they will know if they have clicked this link at this point, we have continued to comparing catechisms, catechisms, well, catechisterisms, catatonics. The real question, catastrophic. Uh, Calisthenics. (laughs) Jazzercise. So, yeah, so the real question is why the God man? And uh, and not something that clearly says what we're doing. But, yeah, that that is pretty much it. Uh, We're coming into Lord's Day 6 here with uh, with our catechisms, which basically is asking that old question from uh, Anselm concerning why Jesus had to become man. Thus, uh, he had titled his uh, his his infamous work, uh, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. Yes. So, if, why if, indeed? Yeah. So, um, since we follow the structure of the Heidelberg, and since Caleb is our representative of Heidelberg land, being a minister in the United Reformed Churches. I prefer uh, Heidelandia. Heidelandia. Hmm. Landia. Interesting. We could do <laughs> things with that in the future, hypothetically. Hippocratically. Technocratically. No. <laughs> no, not that. Um... <laughs> So, Caleb, why don't you kick us off with some some sweet, sweet question 16 sounds? 
Yeah, so uh, really, uh, just a brief reminder, uh, if you're just catching up here or just jumping in, uh, Lord's Day 5 begins the second part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is what actually begins to speak about how man is delivered from all his sin and misery. Uh, his sin and misery being taken up in part one, um, in how man is under the law, how the law affects him as one who has sinned through Adam and because of our actual sins. So Lord's Day 6 uh, is, 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 is continuing on uh, on this question of how can we be delivered from our sins? Uh, Lord's Day 6 gets a bit more specific. It, it's piggy-tailing off of, uh, piggybacking, however you want to call it. Piggy it's piggybacking, day. however you That's want to call it, however you want to say it. It's, I'm sure we can, we can, sure we can logically work that out and make it make sense, kind of. But the, uh, uh, yeah, so Lord's Day 6 is really piggybacking off of uh, question answer 15, which is basically like a short version of what we're going to be talking about. Question answer 15 just says, what kind of mediator and deliverer shall we look for then? One who was a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is one who is also true God. So Lord's Day 6 now uh, expounds that. And question 16 asks, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Answer, because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner... Could never pay for others. Uh, and I'll just read through all, all four of these questions so we can just go through straight through, I suppose. Um, we may break somewhere. Yeah, we're going to break them. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're live tonight, but we may not be live forever doing this, so we'll see. That sounds <laughs> ominous. Yes. <laughs> it also sounds like a threat. We could also, you know, just Christ could return sometime in the next 40 to 50 minutes and... Or three it's hours. Good. Yeah, you never know with us. <laughs> so, yes, uh, that, that first question is, why must he be a true and righteous man? The second question, uh, question 17, why must he also be true God? Answer, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18, then who is this mediator, true God, and at the same time a true and righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. In question answer 19, how do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me. God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Yeah, so in picking up this first question, this is the question of why must the mediator be man with respect to his nature? And, and actually, truly man, not someone that just appears like a man, not someone that's kind of man-like, a mix of man, but a real person, real man uh, with our own human nature. And then not only that, but uh, that he would be righteous. Um, Andrew? I've been talking already for a bit, so I think tonight let's mix it up and let's have you start that off. If you want to jump into the larger catechism there or... Uh... Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so typically in this series we've been using the shorter catechism as our guide for the Westminster Standards. One of the issues that we run into is the shorter catechism, being that it is the shorter catechism, doesn't really teach 
doesn't really treat this subject in a whole lot of detail. And so we are going to be mainly tonight in the larger catechism. We will be looking mainly at questions 33 through 40, except we don't have question 37 because I think we've already looked at question 37. I'd have I think to we back. actually did. Um, so it's 33 through 36 and then 38 through 40, which I guess since Caleb read all his up front, um, I can read mine up from now. They're not going to be in order. If we're following this same structure and order, uh, the order is a little different. So I'm actually going to start on question 39, uh, which is why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? So it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons, and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. And then next, after the question related to the question in the Heidelberg about him being true God, we have larger catechism question 38. Right? Why was it requisite? That the mediator should be God. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience, and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Um, so you'll notice that the larger, because it is the larger, hits these questions with a little more detail. Uh, next, question 36. Uh, following up on the Heidelberg, when it asks, who is this mediator we look for, the larger asks, uh, would have been before the ones I've read in question 36, who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. And then, uh, regarding the question, how do you come to know this? This is essentially the Heidelberg's presentation of covenant theology, and I actually have three more larger catechism questions on that. So I think we might just come back to those a little later when we're more in that section. <laughs> yeah, so really here, uh, really here with this uh, with this first question and answer from the Heidelberg, um, you notice that it's uh, it, it's picking up in in uh, emphasizing uh, God's justice here that that God is the standard of righteousness. God is the standard for what. Uh, he considers to be proper, right, and good. Um, the uh, so he is uh, he himself is setting the 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 terms for what must be rendered. Um, now, in, in in question seventeen, there's a key phrase there. Actually, uh, part of me that's I'm thinking of uh, I'm thinking of uh, an earlier. Uh, an earlier question and answer in uh, question and answer 11, when it asks, uh, isn't God also merciful? Uh, it states that his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. 
Uh, so that word justice is is referring back there that he and his supreme majesty uh, has been um, uh, offended. It has been it has been uh, deliberately rebelled against. Uh, so therefore, uh, even the smallest sin, smallest affrontation uh, against God's law and therefore against him must be paid for, must be satisfied. Um, but here, the question and answer is, is, is asking, why is it that man has to pay, that a man has to pay? Well, human nature is the one that sinned. Um, you know, we might think in, uh, say, in Romans uh, chapter 5, verse uh, 12, that uh, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection, uh, pardon me, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Uh, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 21, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So that already gives us in 1 Corinthians a little bit of a, of a foretaste of uh, what this will all result in. Uh, there's also uh, in Genesis 2, 17, that the warning had been given for transgressing God's covenant, where the Lord had said, uh, in the day in which you eat of it, of that tree that was forbidden, uh, you shall surely die. Uh, likewise, Hebrews 9.22, without uh, the shedding of blood, there is no uh, forgiveness of sin. There is no remission of sin in other translations. Um, so it, it's man's own very nature, uh, which no other creature could uh, pay for. Um, in this way, uh, this, this is what explains why the blood of bulls and goats, as we said in, I believe, the last episode of Comparing Catechisms on Lord's Day 5, why the blood of bulls and goats could not really truly satisfy and pay for God's uh, for man's uh, transgressions against God. Um, and even then, uh, there's a requirement in which this man also must be righteous, as we're going to see in a moment. Um, so not only must he pay for sins, he also must be without sin himself. Uh, so here, uh, though, you also have in the, the concept of payment, um, you're already getting uh, an allusion to uh, uh, an allusion to uh, Jesus Christ's office of high priest here in this question and answer. That's what uh, the, the authors have in mind at this point. Um, perhaps the single text that sums up best what is being stated here is in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to uh to 17 uh, or even we can go into 18 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he that is jesus christ himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil so he uh, so the author of hebrews said that he likewise partook of the same things that is our human nature and flesh our, our human spirit and in order that he might deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there he's saying that uh, we keep in mind, man cannot pay for himself. Uh, he cannot bear the full wrath of God in which we're going to see in the next question and answer. Uh, therefore he had, uh, so for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So Jesus Christ did not, uh, did not uh, suffer and die. Uh, and raise again for the angels, but for the children of Abraham, which uh, is referred to as the seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3, 15. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the entirety of Christ's life uh, from the incarnation up to his, his ascension in, in exaltation, uh, or pardon me, up to his resurrection, his, his ascension and exaltation, uh, was a life of suffering, a life of humiliation, that he, in condescending himself to take on our cursed flesh, our cursed nature, and being bound by the effects of the fall, uh, except he being without sin, he offered himself up so that our nature would be freed. Yeah. So uh, I noticed that Caleb's video froze with him striking an <laughs> epic pose, but according to what I'm seeing, they they can still hear you. So, um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so picking up that that actually that discussion from Hebrews two about natures. Uh, that's a good segue into the larger catechisms mm -hmm. discussion of the same issue because uh, this line up at the up at the front um, in the answer in the larger catechism talks about advancing our nature. Now that's uh, mm -hmm. not a particularly that's probably not the words we would use to describe. And you might first read that you might say, "What does it mean to advance our nature?" What it means is that he is advancing human nature. He is helping he is redeeming humans human nature um so for instance you look and look here at by the way this is well gotta actually get where you can see it this book this is a commentary on the westminster larger catechism by johannes gerhardus voss that is the son of the famous dutch biblical theologian gerhardus voss of uh theological school and later princeton fame his son was actually a, a professor and minister in the RPCNA among the Covenanters. Um, but so when Voss is commenting on this question, he goes straight to uh, this discussion of angels and how God did not uh, redeem angels, which actually, if you study the larger catechism... You'll notice distinct in it from the shorter catechism. There's actually quite a lot of discussion in the larger catechism regarding uh, men and angels. Because while we don't get a lot about this in the Bible, we get enough in the Bible to know things like God created man and angels. He created them good. Uh, he created them. Uh, he created them righteous, but some men and some angels fell. But what distinguishes men and angels, or one of the many things that distinguishes men and angels, is that for fallen men, there is provision made for redemption. There is a covenant of grace. There is redemption, whereas for the fallen angels, no such redemption exists. So this is important for a couple of reasons to point this out here, and why God, why Christ, as our mediator, had to be man. He had to be man because he was seeking to save humans. Um, but also it was important that he would be man. I mean, this is something Voss gets at, which uh, maybe it's his his Dutch upbringing kind of shining through a little bit. But a question that Voss asks in his commentary, uh, looking at 
this issue of angels under question 39 he asks because he does his commentary in a question and answer format so kind of a catechism within a catechism why could the angel gabriel or some other angel not have become a mediator to save the human race from sin and he says the angels are not members of the human race they do not possess human nature therefore none of them could be qualified to become the second adam to undo what was yeah, undo the wrong done by the first Adam. So he's advancing our nature. He's advancing human nature as distinct from other nature, other natures such as the nature of the angels. Uh, also, we read that our mediator had to perform obedience to the law. He had to fulfill all righteousness um, that we are lacking. Because we are fallen and sinful, none of us keep the law. This is what you would often hear in theological terms referred to as active obedience. Christ had to fulfill and keep the law on our behalf because we have not done that. And the righteousness that is required, it involves the keeping of the law, and then it also requires the payment of the penalty. Um, so those two, which is done in the passive obedience, Christ's suffering and his death for sins um which is the next part suffer and make intercession for us in our nature so he has to suffer in our nature similar to what the heidelberg is saying um because a, a man must pay for the sins of man a one who is like of like nature must do it uh, but also to make intercession for us um you know christ is our our only mediator, our only intercessor, who intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, and he does so as one who shares our nature, one who is like us. Um, also, we see to have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. This is where we get the passage about Christ you know, being tempted in the ways that we were tempted. And we see in Christ's incarnation in his life and experience on this earth that uh, all of the things that he suffered as a human in a fallen and sinful world, though he himself without sin, he experienced uh, many of the effects of sin in the world and suffered many things. Even just, uh, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John in the evenings uh, in our services here in South Dakota. And, uh, you know, recently we looked at the passage where uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he wept even though jesus knew because he'd already basically said he was going to do it that he was about to raise lazarus from the dead he still weeps because he still experiences and feels the grief and the loss of having someone that he loved and also um the power just went out here so hopefully you didn't lose me but uh, anyway uh our our router and my computer are on a backup, so you shouldn't have. Uh, but anyway, uh, the hazards of life shows. Anyway, <laughs> uh, what was I saying? Oh, he, Jesus wept because he, he, you know, was dealing with the death of his friend, but also knowing that his other friends, Mary and Martha, they were suffering. They were going through pain, and he was, uh, he was gripped by that. He did experience that sort of thing. Um, the sort of difficulties of living in this fallen world. But then also at the end of this answer in the larger catechism, uh, we see that there are particular benefits that are derived from Christ becoming man. 
says that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. So because Christ is our mediator, Christ is our intercessor, again, we can know that there is one at the throne of God who intercedes for us, who is like us. You know, when we bring our needs, when we bring our cares, when we bring our own pain and suffering uh, to God, we know that he is there and that he knows what that is like. Um, but also this adoption is sons. Now there will be later on in the catechism a fuller treatment of the doctrine of adoption. Um, but just suffice to say now that in becoming like us, uh, in a certain sense, you know, Christ becomes our elder brother. He becomes uh, the first fruits uh, of the resurrection and the first fruits of, of those of us who we become adopted as sons, adopted as heirs. Uh, as God's children. Yeah, a note on uh, on that phrase uh, to advance our nature. Um, you know that that's something to keep in mind with uh, when when we consider uh, man's uh, well when we consider the fall. Like like if remember we, we've had the uh, the image of God uh, shattered, um, it heavily distorted. Uh, in terms of what we were meant to be in uh, made for in true righteousness, holiness, and and, uh, and knowledge, uh, all to the praise of God's glory. Um, that uh, so w- with the fall, we're so distorted that in a sense, I mean, we're, we are we are we are a distorted human nature. And even before that, though, uh, Adam was not, if you will, in a sense, the complete fullness of of man. Uh, he still had a uh, he still had a a uh, he still had a, 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 an obligation. Um, there was still more that he might have uh, been uh, brought into, right? Uh, but he was not in a glorified state, uh, in innocent state, yes, right. In so far as uh, what he was made for, uh, he was very good perfect in the sense in which uh, God had made him to be. But he would have continued on um, and at some point should he have, so if he had obeyed uh, the command to not eat of the tree of uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he would have at some point uh, transitioned into a glorious state in a fullness, right? Now, yeah. with the advancing of the, our nature, uh, so with, with Christ coming as the second Adam and Christ obtaining glory, I mean, Christ is, uh, in this way, uh, he is the fullness in, uh, he is the fullness of humanity. He's the one who has, who has fulfilled uh, the obligations of, of uh, worship and service and uh, in, in love and obedience that the Lord had required of man all along. Jesus Christ himself is the true man, not just man, right? So when, when we are united in Christ and we are being conformed into him, we're really being made more human, thus an advancement of our nature, and one day shall be wholly conformed unto his likeness, into Christ's likeness. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's, so it's not that we're going to become something more than human, so much as uh, we are going to truly be human, finally. Yes, we will be glorified and 
perfected humanity. And that's why I mentioned, although it's not explicitly stated here, how how Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, because that's where we're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we're going to be as he is. We're going to be in a glorified state with our glorified bodies, um, you know, free of sin. You know, we're in this life. We are conformed more and more to the image of Christ or, you know, we're putting our sin to death and we are bringing raised to life and new obedience uh, bit by bit, piece by piece, that true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that was lost in the fall was being restored back to us, but never perfectly in this life. Um, it's only at the resurrection that we see it in finality. And yet, um, we do really see uh, these benefits and these blessings applied to us in our lives uh, as we are sanctified. Um, and I think this is important, too, not to beat a, a dead horse that we often beat on, but we talk a lot about <laughs> Uh, theories of, for instance, the Dominion Mandate. And uh, there's some popular theories in our day that would say things like, because of Christ and what he has done, he has essentially fulfilled the Dominion Mandate such that it no longer applies to us. It's no longer, uh, it no longer, you know, is no longer something that we are under or expected to do or anything. Um so we really don't need to care about things like, you know, having kids or caring about anything in this world. It's almost a, an Anabaptist type approach to things. Um, but no, we see that Christ has saved us uh, not to bring an end to uh, man's original created purpose and to tell and tell us. So the tell us, that's a Greek word, you know, talking about the ends of things, the goals to which they are heading and oriented but uh, Christ moves us closer to that and so really it's not that he fulfills that such that it doesn't he fulfills the dominion mandate and such um, that it doesn't matter anymore in reality he gives us back to it so that more and more as we're sanctified we can uh, carry out the purposes for which we were created yeah and you could refer to our uh, our previous series that we've done on uh on the relationship between nature and grace, right? That uh, in, in this way, what we're, what we're really saying is, I mean, and, and I think that that evidences it here, uh, you know, grace is restoring nature. It's not done away with nature. It's not obliterating our nature. I think the uh, the faulty assumption of those who say, uh, you know, what you're talking about, like in Christ fulfilled the dominion mandate, I think that comes in looking at the dominion mandate in its, in its, you know, context of nature, right? As 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 part of a uh, of of uh, general revelation and uh, uh, general commissionings, uh, a common grace and natural law. Uh, it's equating, right? Uh, thing anything of common grace or general revelation with uh, natural law. Um, and since Christ comes, well, then he's he's he, you know he's done away with that aspect of it for anyone that's uh, a believer, right? Um, yeah, this, I think this, this ties back to exactly what we're talking about here too, though, with, uh, you know, we're saying, uh, for, for the Heidelberg Catechism for question and answer, uh, 16, there's, um, there's, there's, uh, a lot of things are, are really implied in it. Like if you noticed in the distinction between, uh, uh, what the larger catechism had said, um, in, uh, <laughs> Sorry, you just changed that screenshot in. What the larger catechism said in uh, in its question and answer thirty nine, it's a bit it, it, it's it's explicit 
in saying that, uh, in talking about the performance of obedience, right, to the law. Um, it, it's, it's explicit about, um, you know, it, it's explicit about uh, this, uh, what, what is just referred to here in Wardsley 6, uh, question answer 16, as righteousness, right, the righteous man, and also what God's justice requires. Um, so it's, the catechism, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism here is referring to the obedience of the law uh, that that uh, the larger catechism 39 had said. Um, so it's it's the Heidelberg's authors are, are, are you know, um, assuming that you remember what question answer four says. What does God's law require of us? And it's the summary of uh, of the commandments, uh, the summary of the law. In Matthew 22, 37 to 40, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, uh, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So the fulfillment of love. Where do we go with that? Well, the the it's not explicit here in asking, why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Uh, that he must pay for its sin, which a sinner could never do. Um. What this has in mind, according to one of the catechism's authors, is the the uh, the the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Zacharias or Sinus, one of the uh, one of those who worked on the commission in writing this, uh, he says on this part, the man Christ was perfectly righteous or has fulfilled the law in four aspects. First, by his own righteousness, Christ alone performed perfect obedience, such as the law requires. And that's exactly what uh, that's exactly what the uh, and that's exactly what the uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism had said, right? Obedience to the law. So even the catechism's authors here have have this in mind, right? But also he uh, he, he goes on to talk about, but also in in enduring punishment sufficient for our sins both in the active and uh, passive obedience. So in fulfilling the law in its all its parts in his obedience, but also uh, taking upon uh, the punishment for uh, our, our own failures uh, to satisfy the law and what we owe God. But then he, he also says that the law is fulfilled in two parts, um, in us by his spirit, when he, by the same spirit, regenerates us and by the law leads us to that obedience, which is required from us, which is both external and internal, which we commence in this life and which we shall perfect and fully perform in the life to come. And then finally, Christ fulfills the law by teaching it and freeing it from errors and interpolations and by restoring its true sense. As he himself said, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So it's it. There's a much wider scope here, really. Um, the the question and answer sixteen is keeping things condensed, really, to um, in in uh, largely topical, but it does not uh, fill out or connect things perhaps as sufficient or as sophisticated as the larger catechism in thirty nine does here. Which again. Uh, bearing in mind that we normally work off of the shorter catechism in this series, I don't know if I'm, we're setting a precedent here. We may be using the larger catechism more going forward. Um, but that's kind of the, the happy medium that the Heidelberg is going for and that it's one catechism essentially intended for all people and all uses. 
And the whole reason there is a larger catechism and a shorter catechism is that the larger catechism is meant to be the more detailed uh, treatments of doctrine, whereas the shorter catechism was meant for the memorization and teaching of children. Whereas the Heidelberg, they you tried to do it with one and uh, tried to do both, so you kind of have a medium as far as length and detail. Well, an interesting thing here and moving forward, it's uh, that also the uh, you keep in mind the context of, of the, the Heidelberg uh, is written in uh, and uh, you know, in Palatinate Heidelberg, uh, you know, it, it's it's heavily Lutheran. Um, and with that, uh, there was there was some, uh, it appears, the removal of explicit covenantal language even um, in order to kind of so so the Lutherans basically wouldn't get up in arms and distracted and, you know, miss what it's actually trying to say. Um but it's but, not that the theologians of Heidelberg or anything didn't believe in the covenants. You could read things like Ursinus's commentary and uh, yeah, his catechisms actually too. They talk about cate- covenant. Yeah, if you read Ursinus's catechism, there's a volume by I forget the title of it, but it's by Lyle uh, Birma. It's introduction, an introduction to the Heidelberg Catechism. It sources history and theology. Um, yeah, and in that he's got Ursinus's catechisms, which like from the from the beginning get right into covenantal stuff so wasn't that they um wasn't that they didn't believe in covenant theology or anything or that was a later development because that's often something that uh, can be alleged by uh you know for instance proponents of things like the calvin versus the calvinists theory they say that covenant theology wasn't something that came up until later. No, it was there. It just wasn't in the Heidelberg catechism as explicitly because they're uh, was a need to sort of reach across to the Lutherans who were more prevalent there in Germany and, and kind of have more consensus. Whereas with the Westminster, um, that wasn't an issue they were dealing with. Right. Totally different context. Yeah. You know, almost a hundred um, years later uh, in England um, with a with a thoroughly uh, non-Lutheran Protestantism in view. You know, there it was between like Presbyterians mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe maybe some various uh, forms of of Anglicans, but but gener- but with you know strong Presbyterian and Reformed leanings. Yeah, and now in in uh, in moving forward here, and actually we we spent a lot more time on uh, question answer sixteen here than we would on the others, and in some ways this actually does very well uh, since at least for the Heidelberg. Uh, Question answer 18, I think, is very largely uh, tied into the context of understanding question answer 16 in particular, um, which we'll, we'll, so I don't think we'll spend really much time on that one. But question 17 first, uh, you know, now that we've considered why, why does he have to be uh, not only true man and uh, with respect to his nature, but also righteous uh, so that he could pay for sinners? Uh, we said basically it's so it's an effective sacrifice of infinite value but in order for that sacrifice to really occur to 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 really uh be able to be done um on the other end he must this mediator must also be true god uh so that's question 17 why must he also be true god we're not actually going to do that right now oh uh well we're going to cut we are going to cut Oh, okay. Uh, we, we will come back to question uh, 17 later, but 
Uh, we're already about 40 minutes in for tonight. Um, so it won't be as long as some of our previous live streams, uh, given it's our first time back. <laughs> Want to make sure everything's working right. Um, you know, we just had a power outage and stuff here. So I think we're going to go ahead and actually cut there for tonight. Um, and then we'll we'll, re we'll come back to the rest of this stuff uh, on future episodes. Um, plus, I mean, if we're doing 40 minutes a question, then this is just going to get way <laughs> longer than we really intend it to. So, uh, but Challenge we thank accepted. Yeah, uh, we appreciate <laughs> you joining us. Uh, it's good to be back after being away for a while um, and fighting with technology. Um, seems to be working. I haven't heard any complaints or anything. So uh, if you want to help us, you know, get better and be better, uh, one <laughs> of the ways you could do that, you could consider supporting us with a paid subscription, help us with our equipment game and our knowing how to do things game because everything costs money. So I can figure out how Caleb, how to not make Caleb be frozen in this epic pose. He's been frozen in on the screen for the last 30 minutes. I'm actually fine with this. Yeah, I mean, really, that's that's better than he normally looks. So. I agree. Yeah. Um, Sassy. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, we thank you for joining us. We hope this has been helpful. We hope you learned something. And uh, Caleb, any any final words for the for the polis? How about it I almost... play the How would I play the outro and not the intro? That's right. I, uh, I it almost sounded that. like any final words for the Polish. Um, so no, I, I'm a big fan of the pierogi. That's for sure. Uh, but otherwise, no, uh, I guess hit it, Heidi. Hit it, yeah, Heidi. You're, you're a little early. But... Hit it, hit it, hit it, Heidi. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the latest news and updates, visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com, where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.